on, everybody, and welcome back to the Abundant Journey Podcast. We are so glad you're hanging out with us today. As always, I am your host, Nick James, along with my co-host, Nick Offenkamp. Nick, how are you? Hey, I am doing really well. I'm uh, always glad when we have a guest who's on from Texas, uh, especially when it's somebody who's coming from right next to my birthplace. And so even though I haven't been back to my birthplace of Plano, Texas, I still have the birth certificate, which makes me a Texan at heart. I got those that clear eyes, the full heart. Can't lose, That's baby. right. But uh, you know him a whole lot better than I do. And so I, I won't steal your thunder, Nick. I will let you introduce our uh, guest of honor, and I uh, can't wait to dive into his story. Absolutely. I love it. Well, we got Jonah Hall hanging out with us today, and you did steal a little thunder just because he's coming to Texas, and I normally say where people are coming from, but here we are. So, Jonah, <laughs> what's up, man? Thanks for hanging out with us. How are you? Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, great state of Texas. It's, uh, it's not my home place, though. I moved here, what, seven, eight years ago. Uh, I'll call it home now, but uh, I'm still a, a Kansas City Chiefs fan. I'm from Missouri. I'm still kind of got some things that make me kind of want to go back home sure. sometimes. Does that get you uh, in trouble? I mean, living in Dallas and, uh, you know. Actually, it, so that's great. <laughs> actually, it's pretty funny. So the, the Kansas City Chiefs used to be the Dallas Texans. I don't know if you like I the didn't way know back. That. Like, I don't know, the 60s, wow. okay. maybe 50s. I don't know. And so there are actually fans still alive that remember that and they show up to this one bar in Richardson, which is just, I don't know, five miles from here. And it's like 150 people in Chiefs jerseys for every game. It's awesome. It's probably the second best place besides going to Arrowhead Stadium. It's pretty cool. They're your that, people. Yeah, just like the, uh, the, the spirit mm-hmm. of Texas, like the stubbornness of even though Kansas City Chiefs left <clears throat> decades ago, they're not letting go. They're, they're holding on, holding out. No, that's, no, they love it. They love it. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I'm glad you you found your people even in Texas. I that's, found my people. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. That's good stuff. Um, so, so Nick mentioned that you're, you're in Texas. Uh, for our listeners, what are you doing uh, in, in Texas? What's kind of the, the main... Um, thing that you're into uh, down there professionally. And uh, I know we're going to dive more and more into your story, but I'd love to just hear from your own perspective, what kind of a a day in the life or a a week in the life of Jonah Hall looks like. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, When I moved here, um, you know, I didn't have, I just gotten married. Um, Now I got two kids. So that's a big part of my life, obviously. Uh, I got a five and a seven-year-old. They're pretty awesome. Uh, Seven-year-old daughter, five-year-old son. Uh, So uh, anytime I'm not working, we're we're playing, we're having fun. Um, the uh, the the day in the life, if you will, is I'm a, I started a company called Smart Lock Self Storage in uh, 2020, and uh, it blew up uh, to the point that it was uh, hard to keep up with. You know, you, you're learning. You know, you're drinking by fire hose uh, every single day, and um, and it's been great. I loved it. I, I would never, I wouldn't have it any other way. But um, We've got uh, 15, 16 employees over in Garland, and uh, it it definitely is more than a, a nine to five job. You know, when, when you're when you're running that kind of a thing, you've you're uh, pretty much always working. Yeah, uh, it's sometimes hard to turn off, right? That's that's actually the the bigger the bigger issue is figuring out how to turn off and how to truly disconnect uh, from mm-hmm. what you're working on because it's fun. It's you know I'm passionate about it, so uh, it gives me uh, a lot of joy, but. 
I do have to uh, figure out that balance and figure out how to turn it off sometimes too. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you started it in 2020. You say that it's uh, yeah. that it's exploded. <clears throat> what what does that look like in terms of? You mentioned the number of employees, but um, you know the number of either facilities you've got or size of those or what. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So starting back at the beginning, we um, I was working for a family office here in Dallas uh, in Garland. Uh, oil and gas family. Uh, they owned a bunch of real estate, but no self storage. They had they had zero self storage experience. Uh, they really weren't real estate people at all. They they were using ten thirty one exchanges to to like kind exchange from oil and gas real estate into retail. Just easy oh, stuff that's yeah. readily available on the market. Like uh, I don't know, like Dollar Generals and Walgreens and you know single net tenant stuff. Things that's just like they're always on the there's always one on the market you yeah. can go buy if you needed it right. Because the 1031 exchange, you've got a short period of time to get something identified and bought. So they owned uh, dozens of them, and uh, I ended up in managing those those assets for them. And then one went dark, and I converted to storage. So that was the storage. Well, and I was yeah. going to ask yeah. you, you're the up? first person who's brought up family offices, and uh, that's a common thing in, in commercial banking. Okay. But for our listeners, t- tell them what that is. Ooh, uh, I won't try to. I won't sit here and act like I can define a family office because I. I think uh, I know there is a definition. Um, uh, a certain number of uh, of you know liquidity and assets or something. I don't know. Uh, but in this case, uh, at some point along the way, they started calling themselves a family <laughs> office. Uh, they didn't actually call themselves a family office until after I got there. Um, they were an oil and gas operator. Um, they just happened to have a lot of real estate assets and a lot of uh, wealth. And so they decided, uh, well, everybody else you're talking to is calling themselves a family office. I think we are <laughs> yes, too. Yes, we are too. Uh, yes. <laughs> so uh, in reality, they are. I mean, they would meet any definition of a family office as well. But a, a lot of times a family office is usually literally uh, a patriarch of some kind, some sort of family that started it. Uh, it may not be the family that runs the day-to-day stuff anymore, though. A lot of family offices end up bringing in uh, really experienced people in either real estate or whatever asset classes they like to invest in or businesses they like to invest in. And uh, and so there may be somebody completely unrelated to the family that's running the show on a day-to-day basis. But the the, the goal is to preserve, sometimes grow, depending on where they're at in their stage of life, uh, the assets of the family uh, conservatively and, uh, you know, make sure they don't lose it all in, in some crazy uh, thing. So uh, usually there's somebody running the show that uh, that is deciding what they want to invest in, how long they want to be invested in, what their strategy is, and that kind of thing. And, and most of the family offices I talk to are, are, are interested in real estate if that's not their only thing. Uh, and so they may be in multifamily and retail and they may be interested in self-storage and I'm telling them what I'm doing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think it, it does change a little bit though. I've also talked to family houses that all they do is invest in businesses and they buy small businesses and they find an operator for it and they grow it and they sell it. You know, mm-hmm. um, The difference between a family office and a lot of the other groups that I have raised money from is, is really just vision, I think. Uh, family offices tend to be a lot more uh, laid back, more um, focused on creation of, and I mean, sorry, preservation of wealth. Whereas uh, some of the you know private equity groups or or even um, individuals with a lot of money sometimes are, are really looking to quadruple you know some some crazy number on their money, which higher risk higher reward. So yeah. um, sometimes they'll take risks on uh, entrepreneurs or ideas that are um, maybe considered higher risk than some real estate play. 
Um, whereas the family offices tend to be a little more conservative, don't need quite as high of a return, but they're, they're going to want you to be consistent and, and do what yep. you say. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's good. We've talked to a lot of them and, uh, some of them have been our investors and some of them are uh, still on my list. Well, we'll get them one day. <laughs> oh, that's super helpful. Thank you for, uh, for breaking that down. And so you were connected with this, uh, this, this self-identifying family office <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, uh, and helping them convert um, their uh, oil and gas uh, properties or assets into um, commercial real estate. And I think your Correct. direction you were going with that was just how that got you into uh, self-storage. Yeah, eventually it did. So they had a they had an empty what was a Dollar General, honestly. So I don't know if you're familiar with Dollar General. They're pretty much in every state yeah. in the country. So I'm sure everybody's <laughs> seen one, even if they've never been in one. Uh, it, it's usually somewhere between eight and ten thousand square foot box, and usually it's not even made that well. You know, it's just a metal box uh, with maybe a little front facade, some brick or something on the front, and uh, you know, it's it's a dollar store, but with groceries and other things in it. Anyway. The, that business is great. They're a great creditworthy tenant. And so they own several of them. Uh, they, they hold pretty good value uh, through the course of their lease. And um, But this one uh, was dark because they had built another building, like you could see it down the street, right? Uh, that happens a lot in these small towns. Real estate's so cheap, they'd rather just go build another building than pay higher rent when their lease ends in the first building because uh, they don't own the real estate. And in fact, I don't think Dollar General owns any wow. of the real estate. So thousands of stores with no ownership in the real estate. They're just lessees. So uh, anyway, they built a, a nicer building. You could hit it with a, I don't know, uh, you could probably hit it with a baseball bat, not even a golf club. So, I mean, you can, really, it's close. Uh, and so this building was sitting there. Even before I started working for them, it was sitting there probably for the first uh, two years. And they're like, hey, go figure out what you want to do with that. Like, it's a good project. This thing is killing us. You know, we're we're paying insurance, we're paying taxes on this empty building. Let's go figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Uh, so that that's what I I don't know why self storage. To be honest, people have asked me that. I really <laughs> don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but somehow it sparked in my head. I'm going to do self storage. And um, there were two problems uh, that we had to overcome. That really is kind of the genesis of this entire story. Uh, one was it was too far away. Uh, it was almost three hours from my office, so East East Texas, and I did not want to go out there every single day of the week uh, to manage a storage facility, right? I'm like, I'm not doing that, so I got to figure out how to make it run remotely. That was one of them. The other thing is I needed to figure out how to overcome uh, the fact that we thought, which I actually learned the hard way that, or not the hard way, I learned in hindsight that it uh, it actually was a good market, but from my limited understanding at that time, I thought, hey, this is at best an okay market, so I've got to really overcome that. And then uh, it was too small. This was the biggest problem. 8,000 square feet and self-storage is not enough to support payroll or any of the major expenditures. So uh, we had to figure out how to automate it. And in 2000, this would have been 2018, uh, uh, there weren't a lot of people doing that. Um, there were no people doing it the way we do it now because that technology didn't even exist back then. But um, there were a couple of people doing it. And so I called both of them. Um, I don't know if either one of them uh, remember that call. One of them I've kept up with a lot, and he's a, he's a good friend, so he, he knows. But uh, I called both of them, probably got 20 minutes of their time. Uh, and one of them was like, hey, just just come see what we do. Like, I'll show you whatever you want to see. And sure enough, he did. I'm very friendly and, and I really was 
kind of like a mentor, just kind of like, hey, I'll, I'll give you an hour of my time. We'll drive around, see my sites nearby. I'll show you the office, meet the team, ask whatever questions you want. So uh, we literally just carbon copied his <laughs> model at that time. Um, and uh, it worked. I mean, he had a good model. It's, he had spent several years developing it. And uh, it leased up quickly, six or seven months. Oh, yeah. It was full. Oh, um, not very many bad. units. I'm more talking about sure. 65 interior units, right? But 65 units, that's 10 a month, and it was full. And you're like, wow, okay, that was pretty simple. Uh, and I got to do everything on that first one. Um, that was really how I learned to sell storage was I got to be the designer, the GC, the, you know, I was doing entitlements with the city. I was um, uh, ordering all the, the, the parts and hiring all the subs and uh, answered every phone call uh, for the first year uh, during lease up, all that kind of stuff. And, and so it was, a, it was a good whirlwind of, of uh, education for sure. Was that, um, real quick, was that yeah. pretty much brand new to you, that whole like uh, entitlements side, or did you have any experience oh, yeah. there? Okay. No experience with any of that. Honestly, I didn't even deserve to be in real estate in the first <laughs> place. Uh, it was like a God thing, you know, like yeah. just there's no way I was supposed to be in real estate. I have a degree in political <laughs> science. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking at uh, in college, actually, now that I look back, I'm like, I didn't want to be a politician, or at least not at that stage of my life. I didn't want to be a history teacher, which is what most of my peers were doing. And I didn't want to go to law school, which is what the rest of them were doing. I was like, why am I in this degree path? But I just really liked politics, uh, um, policy more than politics. Sure. Uh, and so anyway, I tried my hand at some nonprofits and stuff right after school. But uh, anyway, ended up in real estate kind of by accident or maybe, you know, the yep. guy up there. But yeah. uh, it was fun. Um so anyway, uh, long story short, that developed a model that that worked, and the family office was pretty excited about it. And so, they kind of turned me loose to go keep learning about it. Uh, and um, it took a solid eighteen months before I convinced them to do another one. Uh, they were pretty conservative investors when it came to real estate because that's not their thing. You know, that wasn't their path in life. They were oil and gas people, and so. Uh, 18 months of uh, hard work, and obviously in hindsight, I love it. I I would wouldn't have it any other way. I, I got to underwrite 189 deals or something like that. Like oh, truly wow. underwrite them. A bunch of them, I got to visit the property, put them under contract. I mean, I was learning a lot. Uh, we just didn't pull the trigger wow. on any of them, and that was frustrating at the time. Um, of but those, like I said, looking back, I probably would have made some mistakes if we pulled the trigger sure. on some of those. So. Of those 189, um, I mean, how many did you want to pull the the trigger on that, you know, for whatever reason, ultimately? Probably doesn't... two dozen of them okay. I wanted to pull the trigger on. Uh, probably 10 of them we at least made offers on, and we went under contract on a few and walked away sometime during feasibility. Yeah. Um, some of those were actually excellent deals, and I know that now because the guy that ended up buying it flipped it for doubled his money in a year, and I was like, "See, that's all." <laughs> uh, so it was it was a little bit of a oh man, we we missed out because you guys were too slow. But at the same time, like I said, uh, in hindsight, I wouldn't have it any other way because yeah. I I also wanted to make offers on things that probably wouldn't have turned out. So uh, just it was during that learning phase, and uh, you know it it all happened yeah. for a reason. So yeah. that was good. Um, anyway, uh, I'll try to two more minutes, try to get through the rest of the, the, the catchy up to today. Uh, there were two, two, they pulled the trigger on in 2020, uh, spring, summer, something like that. Um, and right about those, that time I was like, 
Love you guys. I'm out. I'm going to go do this. This is fun. I, I enjoy it. I had kind of proven to myself that I could raise a little bit of money um, because at one point during the during one of those deals, they said, hey, we'll carve off a little piece, and if you can raise the money, we'll, we'll let you sidecar in. Um, and so I was like, okay, cool. So I went to a lot of my real estate buddies and said, hey, you, will you invest in this deal? I was really bad at pitching deals, but you know they knew me, and they're like, yeah, sure. And so I probably could have raised, I don't know, half a million dollars or something, you know, no, nothing, nothing crazy. But uh, I was like, oh, I could do this. Yeah. Like, it doesn't take much, one or two deals. And I'm, you know, this replaces my, my W-2 income, right? Um, so I, I was ready to hit the road. And uh, about that time, uh, uh, my former boss's son, David, my business partner now, he was like, hold on, like, why are you just starting over? We, we just, you built a brand, you identified a, a logo, you've got all these models, like, let's just buy that. It's not worth anything today. We'll just kind of transfer that over, buy it from the family office, and we'll wow. start our own company. So we did that instead. So we became partners in October of 2020. Um, and that's when we kind of started the actual smart lock journey. Um, the technology had changed a lot. We were on iteration, I don't know, 12 or something of uh, the tech stack and what we do and how we do it a little bit different than everybody else. Um but overall, we were we were still an operational company. We didn't really know development, construction. Uh, I knew how to buy deals and acquire deals, but it was about acquire acquiring deals and operating deals. That was it. We had to learn the rest still. Mm. Um, so we started we started raising money. Uh, we raised about four million dollars over the next wow. four months, and did four deals with that with that money. Um, and started hiring because it started to be way more than we could do by ourselves. <laughs> Uh, and I think there was a point there where we were hiring like one person a month for like 18 wow. months straight or something. It was, it was a whirlwind because I, I hadn't even been a people manager. Like I'd never even been a manager at McDonald's. Like that was not <laughs> <laughs> like that. I'd never managed people before. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm their boss. I'm not just their manager. And so uh, that, was a, that was an interesting uh, learning curve for sure. Uh, we, we hired some people that didn't work out and that was completely our fault we hired some people that didn't work out and that was their fault and <laughs> a little bit of both but uh uh that was probably more of a learning curve than anything in real estate wow. honestly uh just learning how to run a business and all the processes and procedures and people and uh people are people you know people have issues and people have things they need you to handle and and uh you're like man this feels like a major distraction from what, what i set out to do but it's not. It's part of the process of building something that uh, that operates without you. Uh, and I think we just recently got to that where, you know, the last maybe six, eight months where I, I could not be there for a week or two and I know I'm coming back and everything's fine. Oh, that's yeah. a good feeling. I was going to uh, say, that's that got to be a huge that was like, not relief. possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's kind of it in a nutshell. But um, yeah, we got into self-storage <laughs> in, in a big way. We really built out... Uh, uh, all the verticals, development, construction, uh, accounting, capital raising, all that is in-house and uh, even architecture um, because it was just, uh, it made a lot of sense for the markets and the, the types of product we were working on to uh, control yeah. all that, especially from a timing perspective. I want to go back just a little bit. The the properties yeah, you're talking sure. about and underwriting those 189 and as you guys were growing, was it all conversions or at were you looking at existing facilities? Most of those were not conversions, actually, okay. back then. Um, this would have been 2019, mostly, maybe a little bit of 2020. Um, 
at that time there were still some deals out there sure. pre-COVID. Uh, the deals kind of disappeared there for a while. I think they're coming back finally. Um, but uh, I would say out of that 189, if I had to guess, 80 or 90 percent of them were value add traditional okay. acquisitions. You know, um, they were things that were either on the market or I had a lot of friends in the industry at that point that were bringing stuff to me a little bit off market too, but they were mostly probably marketed deals. I mean, things that had an OM that I was reading through and putting together the underwriting and then going to visit the site. Um, but there were just actual deals on the table in 2019. You could, you could find a, a stellar sure. deal. Hmm. And then in 2020, COVID hit and cap rates plunged and everybody wanted ridiculous amounts for their, for their properties. And uh, I actually... One of our employees, we, we had to let him go. Had, hey, I can't even afford to pay you anymore because we can't find any deals. Like that's your whole job, is to find value add deals. And we went from making offers on two or three a month to finding one every other month or something. And wow. uh, that was just like, whoa! I can't justify an entire you know payroll spot to uh, to underwriting you know five deals a month or something, and none of them take out take yeah. off. So right. it was weird what COVID did to the value add acquisition. And that's why we kind of pivoted and went into the, the conversion space. Yeah. Real quick, just on the acquisition side, I mean, it's helpful as you were just talking about uh, smart lock and realizing the two strengths that you had going into it, which was um, finding deals, acquiring properties, and then the operational side. And so the, the, the big gap to fill in in the middle was just everything to <laughs> to go from acquisition to actually uh, operating. So, yeah. you know, I want to, we'll get into to that piece, but um, talking about the deal acquisition, finding deals, having deal flow, um, mm-hmm. I am sure that that has changed, but um, were you mostly looking at stuff that was on the market, uh, making relationships with brokers, or are you approaching um uh, owners for off-market deals. What what was your process uh, for finding deals? And um, and I suppose this is some uh, looking to the past, but also um, thinking about our, our listeners, because that's one of the big questions for anybody who's trying to get mm-hmm. started, right? Sure. It's like, where the heck do I look? Um, and so I'm curious yeah. even how you've seen that change through COVID and into today. Yeah, it's definitely changed. Um, I say it's changed. I don't know if what's effective has changed but people's tactics have changed uh i don't sometimes not for the better necessarily i don't think but um the so back then i was not cold calling any sellers uh and i don't think we really cold call today we do some mailers and different things and and they're marginally effective uh enough to do them but um they're they're not the biggest bang for your buck um the thing that we were doing back then that I thought was just not working. And then it turned out months later to realize, oh man, we were actually laying seeds that were going to really bring us a harvest later. So what we were doing at that time is we were identifying uh, markets we wanted to go to. And granted, we weren't very good at that at that time, but at the same time, we were trying to. We were, yeah. So we were uh, actually doing full market studies, even if there was no asset necessarily in that market yet. We just knew, hey, Location is pretty good. Population size is about what we like. Uh, it's a it's a healthy market. You know, decent average. You know, decent median incomes, and it's not shrinking. It's not dying or anything. Um, so let's go. Let's go underwrite it. We had time on our hands, right? We weren't we weren't uh, in a race for anything. And so 
uh, we underwrote markets as if we had an asset, even though we didn't. Mm. And so basically, we were creating yeah. data. You know, we we're creating all this stuff where we could we could act more quickly when we, when something did come up. But that's only half the equation. That's not really what what was helpful. What was helpful is after we did that, I had a. Uh, uh, Larry, uh, Robert, a couple of these older guys in the office, they were my, my former boss's uh, business partners. I say older, I mean, they're, they're in their 70s. Uh, maybe, maybe Robert's 80 now, I don't, I don't know. But he, he uh, and Larry would come in just, just to get out of the house and do something again. They'd come and cold call realtors, brokers, right, for me. And so I'd say, hey, here's my list. Here's all the markets we've already underwritten. I know if I found either a building we could convert or an existing storage facility in this market, we would fear, be very interested in buying it. So call the realtor and say, hey, this is our buy box, this is what we're looking for in your little market, and uh, lay those seeds. And so, I mean, very rarely did that phone call end up in anything we could buy, right? That, that wasn't the point. The point was to build a relationship with that little local realtor that knew that market, he lived there. And uh, I mean, we're talking about some, some pretty small markets, 10,000, 12,000 people, you know, 15,000 people, these kind of markets. Uh, all the way up to a couple hundred thousand people. But uh, what was funny is these older guys are so good on the phone. <laughs> like that, that was their entire life. They, they, were, they were calling and raising money from people for oil and gas deals 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And uh, they're just naturally good on the phone. They know how to carry on a conversation. Now, to me, it felt like a waste of time listening in sometimes because they're talking about their grandkids and whatever <laughs> else. You know, they're, but they're building relationships. That's, right. That's the whole yeah. point. Right. And so they... Uh, they would actually build significant relationships to the point that when that did that deal did come available, whether it was an existing storage, which usually it wasn't, it was a building, uh, they'd call us back. They'd be like, oh, I remember this guy called looking for a big grocery store-sized building. Hey, this one's for sale. Or you know, they'd show up to church next week and the guy that owns the grocery store says something like, oh, you'd sell it? Oh, I know somebody that wants to buy it. You know, And it's amazing. So I would say it took at least six to nine months before that started having any real impact but then after that it was for a while there it was probably half our deals were being sourced that way that's people really calling cool. us back from you know calls we made months ago um and so that really created quite the pipeline oh, yeah. uh, and i think that's still a very tried and true way of doing it because these local people they know their market they probably yep. know the sellers um and sometimes these buildings are not listed at all and if they are listed they're listed on a little mls local hyper local to that area and they're not on CoStar, they're not on LoopNet, they're not on any of these CorectC, they're not on a national platform, and so you're not going to find them unless you know how to get into that local MLS. So I would encourage people to, to use those people because they're there, they work on commission, most of them care about that, some of them don't, but most of them care that they work on commission, and, and they're going to call you back. And so they have a lot more incentive to answer your phone call and spend some time with you than the seller who probably gets a lot of calls, and you know it just feels like spam yeah. to him at this point. Hey, as a uh, real estate broker professionally, I uh, love everything that you've just said. <laughs> That's a good word. Definitely uh, for, form those relationships with your uh, those local brokers, and uh, if you find good ones, they'll uh, they'll serve That's you right. well. Well, that's true. And and the other thing that you know, the little caveat that I that I was amazed with was a lot of these times these were. Uh, um, Residential brokers. These weren't yeah. even commercial brokers yeah. because these towns were so small. They had to serve yep. both anyway. Right. Like they were mostly selling houses, and then every once in a while, a commercial property would come up for sale or for lease, and they do that too. But that's not their skill set. But there wasn't a commercial broker in town, so they you got what you had. 
And uh, I was amazed most of the time those they weren't commercial brokers. The ones that really cared and called back were taking advantage of an opportunity that somebody wanted to buy a commercial building in their town where they ran the residential aspects. So uh, call them both. Uh, just because they don't list on Google as a commercial you know, broker or agent, they can still sell commercial real estate, especially in a small market where they may not be any commercial real estate agents. That's so. all right. No, that's good. That's good word. I, uh, yeah. Jonah, as you've been talking through your story, I'm, I'm kind of curious. You mentioned kind of learning from drinking from a fire hose with all of these different pieces from management and, you know, employees and, mm-hmm. and, and systems and all of that. We talk a lot about building systems and the necessity for that as you scale. Did you have a mentor or two during that time that was helping you? Was it a lot of books or was it just simply, hey, we're, we're going to stumble forward and just keep building this thing or maybe all the above? <laughs> uh, it was all the above. But um, so I'll answer your first question. Did I have mentors? Sure. I definitely did, and I highly recommend everybody has mentors. Like there are people that have that are way older and wiser than you are that have been through everything you're you're going through, pretty much. Um, but I didn't have them like coaching me along the way or anything. Uh, it wasn't like I had a coach, you know. So I, I had a I had mentors I could ask specific difficult moment questions, uh, or if I didn't know anything about something, I knew who to call, and that's mm-hmm. valuable. Um, but it was a lot of stumbling forward and figuring it out, making mistakes, that kind of thing. And then, yeah, there were books and stuff, although that's more, I would say, in the last year, year and a half of my journey. I've been a lot more in books and podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, at that time, it was just head down, working 80 hours a week on whatever we were working on. Um, so it was a lot of stumbling and, and learning the hard way. Um, but it was Drink Through Firehose because we were trying to do stuff we had never done uh, as fast as we could. And at one point... Um, in our journey, uh, to mostly 2022, we uh, probably bit off more than we could chew, frankly. But we were we had um, 15, 16 development projects in flight wow. at one time. Jeez, oh, <laughs> it was <laughs> wild. Um, it that is a lot to maintain. Now I had people. It wasn't like I was doing all that. I had construction managers that were managing construction. I had development guys that were handling the entitlements and the design and the you know variances from the cities. And uh, I had you know somebody communicating with the well. I was doing most of the communication with the investors, I guess. But uh, we had people for most of the aspects. So it wasn't like we were doing it on our own. But still, 15, 16 projects at once is a oh, yeah. mind-blowing number of phone calls that have to be made and you know things that have to be checked and and double-checked and triple-checked and uh, it was a lot. And uh, so you learn a lot of things simply because you didn't have enough time in the day to keep up with it all. And so you're like, ooh, I know how to prioritize that next time <laughs> because I should have made that call before that call. Uh, little things that just, uh, we, we made sure we notated things, created checklists, created master <laughs> checklists. Um, we have this one checklist that's like the life cycle of an entire project. It's probably like 190 rows of, of you know, to-dos with like detailed, I mean, here's the people you call to do this task. Um, and that's just to get it to CO so that the operations team can take it over. And then there's a whole operations checklist too, you know. Um, so there's we tried to make checklists and tried to create uh, documentation, um, but at the same time, not probably the way a corporate company would. I mean, I don't I don't have any perfect policies and procedures in place yet. I mean, I, we have them. They're just kind of they're in that folder over there somewhere. <laughs> You'll find them, you know. Uh, but. But we have them; they're documented. But we do probably need to go back and, and make them a little more accessible, especially to like a new employee or something. 
Still, what an amazing uh, way to build systems out of just utter necessity and then uh, have those systems stress tested and iterated all very, very rapidly. I mean, that's... uh, I I got into real estate um, on the residential side in... uh, in 2021 working for a builder, which with the Mm -hmm. market out here, uh, it was as easy as being an order taker at Burgerville or or something like that. (laughs) You know, people just walking in the the door and, uh, you know, just say, this is the floor plan. These are the options. But, um, you know, in my first, uh, three months, I think I had, uh, 26 homes under contract, which is pretty nuts, but it, it was, uh, that similar kind of thing of just that like, okay, this is happening and I, yeah, I yep. gotta, I gotta figure it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, no uh, kidding. It, and, it, and being under contract is no joke on anything. You know, you got deadlines, you got right. timelines, you got, you know, provisions of those contracts. You got to know what they mean and how they, you know, how they get triggered. Uh, and if you got 26 at once, that's, that's a lot of moving parts to keep track of a lot of balls to leave in the air, you know, yeah. and, and, you're going to drop one probably at one point when you get that many going at once, but yeah, I mean, in, yeah. Uh, so every I think every entrepreneur dreams of having a similar sort of experience where you go out, uh, you start your business, and in the first year you just see explosive growth, mind blowing kind of growth. But I also know that for folks that have had that, it does present its own. Uh, unforeseen challenges, like the blessing can be a a curse. And, um, so I am curious, just like if, if you were to, to go back and do it again, like, do you think that 15, 16, uh, deals at development deals at once? Like, would you do that again? Or would you recommend to others? Like, you could probably slow your roll a little bit and save yourself some stress. What do you think? Uh, I like to bring it on. Yeah. But, um, so I'm, I'm probably <laughs> a little different heat. than most people. I, I wouldn't tell people to do what I did because I don't think many people are going to have the staying power. And sure. and I don't mean that in a rude way. I just, I just mean like, I think the biggest thing an entrepreneur needs is resilience. Yeah. And if you just take on too much, you can get to the point where you just can't go on anymore. And I had moments where I was like, whoa, what am I doing? Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, that does come along with a curse. Like, there are things you just do out of order or you take on too much uh, and you create problems you didn't know could even be problems, right? Um, the, probably the, the most obvious example is if you get too many things going and you hire too many people too quickly, cash flow can become a problem, right? Sure. You've got to figure out how to pay all these people and get to the finish line on some of these projects. And so we had uh, a lot of learning curves on what it, what it really took to run this business. Um, we went from no payroll to, I don't know, a million dollars in payroll over the course of a year, year and a half. And uh, that's a big difference, right? So now you got to figure out where that's coming from. And so in real estate, um, you know, a lot of it comes from fees when you're a developer or whatever. And and that's fine. You just got to know that fees are are, are the type of uh, income that is based on new deals and new new work. And uh, it's not consistent. It's not uh, it's not consistent enough to be uh, to be relying on, uh, and so you you need to know. Hey, I need to figure out ways I can create consistent cash flow too. So that's like uh, for us, it would be the property management side. You know, that's consistent cash flow, right? That's based on uh, a, a monthly return that you know you're going to get based on the properties that are you're you're managing, uh, and so 
little things I learned a really hard way, right? Uh, for example, if you're a property management company and you don't have minimums and you're opening brand new facilities, you're bleeding cash for the first several months, right? As an oper- as the operator, right? You're not them, they're they're bleeding cash too, but in a different way. The real estate the real estate assets bleeding cash too, but uh, but they they accounted for it. I didn't. Um, you know, they had it in reserves and they, or the bank had it in reserves. Uh, whereas the property management company still has employees and still has all that hours of work, even though the property doesn't have any tenants in it yet. And so we were not charging minimums. And uh, I think that's something that I learned the hard way that it took us probably a, a solid 12 months longer to hit profitability than it needed to. That's a long yep. time, uh, right? Uh, and 12 months can kill mm-hmm, some things. Right. Um Thankfully, we were moving so fast that we made up for it in just pure volume. And so we had enough fees coming in to make up for the fact that certain parts of the business were not making money. Um, so yes, would I do things different? Yeah, sure. I would do things in a different order. I would go create a uh, certain cash flow to create you know, the opportunity to hire that next person and not just hire them on pure faith, maybe. Um, well, I would to some degree. Yeah, but I get it. But um, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, some of the guys that I that I hear that are talking about how you know you create a cash flow stream and then and then you don't look at that cash flow stream as more cash for you. You look at it as one more person you can hire. Uh, I like looking at it that way now. That's sure. not how I was looking at it two years ago when we were making all those hires. Um, and so if I had, we probably would have hired at better strategic times and maybe not quite so early on certain pieces and stuff like that. Uh, not to mention hiring sure. its own. You know, it's it's a lot. Hiring and training is difficult and time consuming. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, you create some curses along the way too, and things that are really sure. challenging. I think people underestimate how hard it is uh, to make it through that first year or two of any business, even if you're not going at totally. Yeah. Well, and and you you know you were able to sit for a couple of years and learn under that umbrella. So you know, Super yeah, that's that. I mean that's I'm sure attributed to a ton of your success. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the existing state of the storage industry. I know everybody likes to talk about that. There's that classic saying, oh, if I only got in when Jonah did. I made that saying up. But, uh, you know, a lot of times people, hey, they're looking on and saying, hey, I want to get going on this. But there's definitely more eyes on storage. There's a lot more big players in storage. So maybe one, what are you guys doing today to stay relevant, to keep moving forward? I know in some of our conversations You've talked a lot about that self-management side of the the, the business and mm-hmm. how you're pushing that forward. So, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, actually, let me caveat one thing. You said something right there that made me think. I think people need to hear this. I think the biggest thing is mm-hmm. just action. You just got to take action. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if the there's more players or more eyes on it or the economy's bad. Like, yeah, just go do it. Uh, that it'll it'll make up for itself. Yeah, maybe your returns won't be as good as they were three years ago, or vice versa, or whatever. Uh, but you'll learn, and then when the market does change, you'll be better equipped to take it's advantage good. of that too. Uh, and actually, I don't think it's a bad time. Uh, just at a high level, I think it's actually a great time to get into self storage. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people that uh, are kind of in a bad place because of the because of the interest rate. So if you can find a way in, and you don't have to have the cash. You can go partner with somebody that has the cash. You can learn a different aspect of the business. Uh, but get in it and do it now. And then whenever these times get a little easier for you to buy one, you, you can get in one. Um, so anyway, I, I, that, that's the big thing. But uh, yeah, we, we did build a operating model that was pretty unique. 
and something I'm really proud of and really uh, excited about. It's it's really tech focused remote management, and so I didn't want uh, really early on. I knew I wanted to create as autonomous facilities as I could. I wanted self service. That's kind of our tagline: self service, self storage. We wanted the people to roll up not having any knowledge about how to rent a unit and just be able to rent one in five minutes and move in on their own without even yeah. needing us, right? And we've achieved that. And uh, that that took a while and that took a lot of different technology vendors to be able to kind of piece together that experience. Uh, but now uh, when someone rolls up to our facility, even if it's nine o'clock at night and they're sitting in their U-Haul, you know, and they're like, I really want to get in this facility. All our competitors in most of these markets are closed. They're, we're the only one they're going to rent from because of this technology stack. And so they can pull out their phone, and maybe they scan the QR code, maybe they found us on Google, whatever, it doesn't matter. It takes them to the rental page, and five minutes later they can be unloading their vehicle into their unit um, without needing to call us. Um, and so that's a big factor in our uh, momentum growth, and most importantly, I think it's what allows us to operate smaller facilities and in more rural markets uh, than than the bigger players. The bigger players need the economies of scale of, of large markets and uh, large footprints, and we don't necessarily need that uh, to be profitable. So uh, that really opens up a lot of opportunity. And is uh, that automation and tech stack that you're referring to, um, how much of that is proprietary versus how much of that is really you? I mean, you mentioned uh, having to find a lot of uh, different uh, vendors, but um, I don't know what's it looked like to to build this. Yeah, well, that, that's the great thing. I you can do it too. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing nothing proprietary in it. Uh, it took a lot of work, and yeah, three years of of uh, testing and beta testing and being guinea pigs and you know things you don't even have to do anymore. Yeah. So you know, I, I like to say to people, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, no, I was just about really, to say really thank you. <laughs> But you, you can do it too, and I, you know, I'm happy to show you how. There's a few other people in the country that are doing something similar, a different t- tech stack, but same philosophy, and it can be done in several different ways, really. Um, but the the cool part is the big REITs haven't caught on really yet. I mean, I say they haven't caught on; they're smart. Don't get me wrong. The REITs have lots of data; they know what they're doing. The problem is they're too big, and they can't move nimbly like we can. Uh, we want to try a new product test something on a facility, we can just test it just like the next day. Whereas, you know, for them, just making the decision might take two months and a couple board meetings. And so, it, you know, you just have this ability to test things and push limits. And so we've been doing that solid for three years. And so now we've uh, we've got a tech stack we're pretty happy with, and uh, it allows us to do all of those things. Um, that doesn't mean we've stopped. We continue trying new things. Uh, new new technologies are brought to my attention all the time. And and some of them we immediately go, yeah, let's try it. Let's see if that helps the implementation even better. Because um, the idea is to scale. We want to own hundreds of assets eventually. And to get to hundreds and, uh, and operate them well, uh, every little piece of efficiency I can create is going to be more important then than it is today. And so we try to think long-term when we're implementing procedures, we're implementing technologies, we're implementing um, platforms, uh, to think, is this going to be the one that scales all the way to 200, or is this a middle ground step, or is this really just a fix for today? Um, but you can do it. Uh, it's it's a lot of different vendors the way I'm doing it currently. It's probably like eight different pieces of software and, and hardware, um, but they all work together. Uh, you just have to be the one to really push them all to sync their, sync their systems up. Uh, the only thing that was proprietary along the way was um, some of those com- uh, companies didn't 
uh, communicate well when we first wanted them to. And so my partner, David, was a software engineer and, and we were he was able to kind of speak their language and get them to that point uh, even maybe earlier than they would have otherwise. Uh, and so maybe there were some things built along the way, but not nothing today is truly mm. proprietary. Everything is, is uh, technically off the shelf and it's actually very purposeful. I want to be able to sell it one day and I want the guy that buys it to be able to operate it yep. just like I do. Otherwise, it's going to lose value, right? If, if they can't operate it the way I do, then, then they're going to underwrite it differently. And so I want it to be able to have that same value to somebody else that it does to me. That raises another uh, question uh, for me. One, just all of that as far as building for efficiency and thinking uh, future forward, that's all amazing. Um, but you kind of started to suggest like uh, exit uh, strategy and, and vision. Mm-hmm. And so um, we've had a lot of different real estate investors, multifamily, self-storage. And there's some people that are like, I'm in the real estate game to uh, buy assets that I'm going to hold forever. And there's others that we've talked with that are like, nope, like I'm uh, I'm building stuff. I'm, I'm looking for value adds so that uh, I can three to five years, um, double, triple the value of something, and then I'm out. I'm curious what mm-hmm. your approach is um, and how you look at different assets, whether it's like this is a facility that I plan to keep forever or this is one that has a shorter timeline. Uh, I have a plan, but I like optionality. I want it to be I want all the plans to be good and that therefore there's no bad no bad scenario, yeah. right? And so obviously anything we are going to buy or build is needs to underwrite as if we were going to just hold it. If, it. if it doesn't work in just a long-term cash flow situation, then you, you're probably mm. making a mistake in the first sure. place. Now I say that there are people that that's their business, right? They're developers. They build to a certain cap rate and they sell at a certain lower cap rate and they make their spread and they get out as fast as possible. And the faster they do it, sure. the more money they make. And I get that. That's a business model. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just not what I'm interested in at all. Yeah. Um, what I want to do, um, and what I'm, I'm pretty, uh, open about is I want to build to hundreds of assets. I want to build until such time that, you know, extra space or public are knocking on the door and saying, Hey, I want to buy your portfolio and they're willing to overpay for it. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Come take it. Um, and that's been happening a lot. And so I, I see that happening in the marketplace over the last few years, uh, massive transactions. I I don't, I don't know if anybody in the audience is familiar with the self storage massive yep. transactions but uh, multiple well over a billion dollars in the last few years um, and you know some as high as I mean the life storage merger obviously was well over 10 billion which is crazy um, but but lots of transactions and I know a lot of the people that were the people exiting in those scenarios I've met them along the way and they're friends of mine and they're like yeah we, we got overpaid for you know that, that's part of the beauty of building a large portfolio that the only way you can scale at that pace, is to buy us at a little bit over market, you know, at a premium. And so we don't underwrite the premium in our performance, obviously, that would be <laughs> stupid. But we know that that's real and that has been real and it probably will be real as the economy, you know, does its cycles. Yeah. And so here in a few years, if, if we've built up a couple hundred locations and someone's knocking at the door, yeah, we'll sell. That, that, that's kind of the end goal. Uh, but I'm also happy to just sit there and wait until the right time is, you know, we, we got 400 assets and cash flowing and, and then someone makes an offer. So there's no set number I'm trying to get to or anything like that. It's just kind of when the time is right and I'm not trying to time the market or anything like that. It's just like I'm building assets that can cash flow until the yeah. right time, you know, to, to exit. You get so to say, that's make goal. me an offer I can't refuse. That's right. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and I know people that literally said, I'll never sell them. And then someone makes them an offer they can't refuse. <laughs> yeah. like, okay, yeah. never mind. I guess yeah. I will sell them. Yeah. Uh, uh, I know a few people like that that have, have sold in the last couple of years that were just, they really thought they would never yeah. sell. But people paid some really dumb money yeah. during COVID uh, for things. And so... They're like, yeah, I guess yeah. I'm a seller. Um, so, <laughs> well, and let's anyway. transition a little bit here, Jonah, in the sense of that, you know, we share common faith. We share a lot of things we're passionate about. You got, sure. we all got young kids here as we're talking today. So let's go a step further. I mean, you are passionate about this industry. You're passionate about the asset. You're passionate about making money. But what's the, what's, what's mm-hmm. the why? I mean, what's the bigger thing for you here? Oh man, uh, for me, I, uh, you know, I, it's funny cause that's actually really coming into clarity over the last few months, uh, more than ever. And so I can, I can answer this a lot differently now than I could have a year ago, a, a year ago, my, my answer. And I think a lot of people are here, so I'll start there. I think a lot of people don't really know the why fully, uh, and, and it takes a while, especially if you're my age, you know, if you're 30, I'm 31, if you're like under 40, you might not really know the why other than, oh, I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it. Okay. Yeah, that's all true. You know, I'm not saying any of that's not true, but like it starts to really hit you differently uh, as you start to see where you can go. Um, so, you know, I, I think <clears throat> my answer would have probably just been, oh, I, I just want to love what I do. I want to enjoy it. I want to do it with people I like. And that's still true. And that's still at the top of the list, right? But for me now, it's like I want to have an impact on generations in my family. Uh, I want them to be more free, not just financially, but that their time. Uh, I want to create um, opportunities that uh, through through my businesses and through through what we go do for others to be to to learn and be free too. Um, I love teaching. I love teaching what I'm learning. Uh, it's fun. Um, I know I, at some point I have to charge for it because the, you just run out of time in the day and you can't just give yourself away for free all the time. But right now I've just been giving away for free. You know, people ask me for help and I'm happy to help and uh, and I enjoy it a lot. Um, so anyway, I, I started to realize that uh, the what I'm building has the potential to create generational impact, uh, like in a way that no one in my family has ever really thought about. Yeah. And that's exciting. Yeah. Like, like. You know, they're they're you go back a couple generations and people were just like, you know, trying to graduate from college and that was like this major achievement, you know. And and now it's like graduating from college, yeah, that's a no brainer. <laughs> Do that, that's fine. Uh, but let's go build something really big that can actually impact generations. Uh, not that education can't. Education can and you should always learn. You don't have to go to college yeah. to learn, by the way. You can you can learn without going to college too. Um, uh, in fact, the people that I'm most interested in following these days are big proponents of just always learning, even hiring coaches after you're already the mm. best at it, you know? And I'm, I'm kind of in that phase of life where I'm just like, if I'm not investing in myself and my education and what I know, then what am I investing money into? Uh, cause you got to get better at it all the time. So I've been recently, uh, I think this kind of answers the question. Um, I've been writing out goals, I guess you could say them, affirmation kind of goals, like in a way that's like a, this is what I'm going to achieve. But instead of saying this is what I'm going to achieve, it's like, this is what I've achieved. Like you say it in that kind of, yeah. I've already, I'm there, even though you're not there, yeah. right? To kind of basically suggest to yourself that you can do it. Because like, your subconscious is pretty powerful, yeah, right? Uh, God gave us a pretty powerful subconscious and uh, really powerful subconscious. And so 
you can actually convince yourself of something that maybe even isn't true yet, but if you're convinced, it'll yeah. probably happen. And so there's some power in that. And uh, some of those goals are very much about uh, leading my family in a way that uh, I never even was really thinking about before. I was just wanting to put food on the table and a roof over the head and maybe take a vacation and stuff. Now it's like super impactful, uh, super impactful things. And so um, it, it changes as you see the light. As like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and once you're working on, your, your goals get bigger. And I encourage you to make really big goals because if you're not making big goals, you might achieve them, but then what? <laughs> like, uh, then you're going to be bored uh, or uh, sad that you didn't set higher goals. So my goals are big, really big. I'll be working on them for a long time, but I'm yeah. okay with that. That's uh, that's part of the fun. It's awesome. I, the identity uh, piece there. Um, I think James Clear talks about that in uh, the in Atomic Habits. The importance of uh, you know viewing yourself and referring to yourself as the the person that uh, that you want to be in present tense, you know, it's like, uh, I, yeah, I, yeah, I heard it. I have read that book, so I know what you're talking about. I have to go back and read that. Uh, the two places that I most recently heard it was going back to Think and Grow Rich, yeah. old book, yeah. uh, an entire chapter on auto suggestion. I think he's calling it self suggestion, right? The concept of this same concept, and then. Uh, Probably Grant Cardone's book, but one of the one of the books about uh, goal setting. Uh, he had a chapter on goal setting, and it was all present tense. I'm going to achieve this, and he was straight up like, "I haven't achieved this yet, but think about how confidently I'm saying that I have, and I'm basically tricking my mind into saying I'm I'm I've already done it." Yeah, and so it just it puts you in a mindset where like I can do this because my brain already thinks I have, and so. Um, I think there's a lot of power in that. It sounds silly. I remember the first time I read it, I was like, "This is a bunch of weird <laughs> crap." You know, I'm not, I'm not sure I even buy into this. But uh, over time, I've seen that to be really true. And even on little stuff, yeah. you tell yourself, you know, you're uh, a morning person. I, this is a, this is a real one. Like people can't get up early in the morning, right? That was me. Yeah. Like not even a few months ago, I was like, "No, I'm a night person." Because I do really well at night, and I still do. I can work until two a.m. and I'm I'm focused and everything's great. But I've I've purposely made the switch, and it's not all important. You can be a night person; it's fine. But if you're telling yourself that you can't be a morning person, you'll never be a morning person. Yeah, because <laughs> you have the control of your of your subconscious there. Yeah. So it's interesting yeah. uh, how that works. Live into the the reality that that you create, and the whole thing on uh, on big goals. That's uh, Speaking my my language, Nick and I did an episode, like one of our very first episodes, and uh, I uh, I spoke on the the glories of the BHAGs, the the big hairy audacious uh, goals, and uh, you know that uh, even if you don't reach uh, all of the the extreme audacious goals, it still typically I think gets you further if you're serious about them than uh mm-hmm. than you would have gotten just by you know playing it safe and setting a goal that was uh way too easy to to accomplish yeah and, which is the concept behind the guys that are talking about 10x yeah, or sure. whatever right you're 10xing something like maybe you get to seven yeah but 7x is way better than if you had just That's set right. the goal at one right. right uh or my dad my dad he's probably still his it's probably still his voicemail if you miss my dad and you call him right now it'll say uh, better to shoot for the moon and miss it than to uh, shoot for a skunk and hit it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then he, and then he switches it and says, 
uh, you know, if you you aim for the moon and miss, at least you'll land among the stars or something yeah, like that. I yeah, mean, yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. he's kind of got the, these little quotes and stuff, and it's the same <laughs> concept, right? right? You, you aim high, and, and you'll hit something way higher than if you'd aimed low in the first place. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's. That's an amazing line. <laughs> I love that. I've not heard that take on it. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty funny one. He's 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 full of the quips. I definitely grew up with a lot That's of quips. Good. They didn't mean as much to me back then, but I uh, I appreciate them a lot more lately. Now, uh, being a dad, I mean, you've been a dad for seven years now, but are you starting to see those uh, coming out yourself? Are your kids at the age where they appreciate your dad jokes and quips? Uh, probably not quips yet. Um, practical jokes though. My dad was a practical joker. So those are fun with, with young kids. Uh, the quips, the quips are not there yet, but they'll, they'll get there soon. I'm sure. Uh, they're, they're smart kids. So they'll, they'll get to the point where those are, those are funny or or memorable. Uh, (laughs) but right now it's more the practical jokes, which we, we we like to play with. So that's good. Well, let's jump here in the last segment of the show. This has been a great discussion, and we usually wrap up every every show here with the same four questions, our gold nugget round. And so I'm just going to fire them at you. The first one here, I just want you to pick one of these, but we talk about the five Fs at Abundant Journey, and it's still early 2024, so we want to hear one of these categories, what you are doing to improve yourself, grow, a focus maybe outside of just real estate. So family, finance, faith, fitness, and future. What's something you're focused on and, and working on growing this year? Um, I feel like I'm taking the easy way out here, but you said pick one. That's really, really hard because I'm I'm actively working on all of them as part of a morning routine yeah. kind of thing. And so... Uh, I've never been a morning routine person, um, but I think uh, I'm actively working on all of them. But if I had to pick one, I'd say this year it's family. Uh, I spent the last three years head down uh, working really hard. Uh, like I'm not going to work any less hard, but I'm just going to put a higher priority on when I'm starting and when I'm stopping uh, and really uh, being mindful of the, the time my kids need with me uh, the time I want to dedicate to their growth and their education and their learning. Uh, and it can be things that I'm doing that's practical. I don't have to stop and do something silly. I can do something that they can tag along with, but I want to make sure I include them. And uh, so family's a big piece. We're going through some crazy stuff at the moment. And I think that on the on the other side of that, we'll realize that all the effort was worth it. And uh, all that effort, head down effort, and sometimes late nights and times away, will be more than worth it. But uh, uh, time time is the most valuable resource by far. And I don't think I quite realized that because I spent a lot of time doing things myself that I could have delegated or I could have hired out or I could have just literally scratched off the to-do list because it just mm. wasn't something I should have been working on. And, uh, and so I'm really focused on time, which in this case, it's for the family. I, w- I want to create more time with the family, uh, and it, and I'm not talking about hours and hours. It doesn't. It, it's more about quality time, right? It's not about uh, taking three days off a week or something. That that I don't think I could even do that. I'm too much of a workaholic to do that. But I want the time that I spend with them to be yeah. very focused, and uh, um, that's to me that's all about figuring out how to maintain my time. Uh, and I think it's a the somebody. I don't know who, who it was that I was listening to the other day talking about kind of a 2080 rule, you know, like go find the things that you personally, especially as an entrepreneur or leader of the group, 
need to be spending your time on, and it's only in the top twenty percent of those things that everything else you need to delegate or just throw in the trash because you should not be working on it. And uh, one thing that comes out of that is your time is more efficient, you're happier, which is going to bleed into how you hang out with your family. So um, I I picked family, but really it's kind of all of them as part of a morning routine because I'm really trying to watch my time and time gives you time for everything else, finance, faith, and all that stuff, fitness. So, No, that's uh, huge. And I think, uh, man, we could do an entire episode just on what you're talking about there, you know, the, the, the to do's and delegating. So man, that, no, that's a good word. Next one here. What's a quote from a book or mentor that stuck with you along your journey? I think you prepped me on this one because I was thinking about this uh, yesterday. I was like, Oh, what? I have so (laughs) many quotes. And I was like, where am I going to go with this? Uh, lately the quote that has been most impactful uh, and it's really two quotes in one because one one came directly from the guy. So uh, Pastor Craig Rochelle has a leadership podcast. I don't know if you listen to his leadership podcast, and it's one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. It's, I mean, it's, it's just good. every it's really good. every time it's in, it's incredible. But he has one about uh, momentum. Actually, it's two a two parter. And in that podcast, he says uh, uh, you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. And I think I've made a lot of excuses uh, in the last few years and I'm realizing that some of those were excuses that I didn't feel like were excuses. You know, you kind of convince yourself that this is legitimate, you know, (laughs) but at the end of the day, like while you're complaining or thinking, you know, maybe you have to be complaining out loud. You're just complaining to yourself internally. You're not making Mm. progress because you cannot do both at the same time. Uh, And so I think that's a big one. And and the the second part of it is I, I was looking for the mug. We have a, we have a, I made posters and mugs and everything around my office. It just says nobody cares, work harder. Um, <clears throat> so that it's the same idea, right? No excuses. We don't we don't care about your excuses. Just work harder, get it done. Um, so uh, I think it's kind of a funny story. I was carrying that poster into the office, and I'm pretty sure my employees took it the wrong way. Like I don't care about them, you know. I was like, that, that's it's really a self thought here, but it's going up all over the office. So learn learn it. Uh, nobody cares, work harder. So that's kind of good though. Concept. And somebody who was doing 16 projects at once, I think you have the right to say that. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Well, yeah. next one here, you talked with us about a dreamer goal, which was uh, scaling the storage you know, business and the portfolio. So I'm not going to let you use that one, but give us a dreamer goal that you have okay. that you've not been able to accomplish yet. Ooh. Um, I would say it's in this case it's financial. Then I mean it's obvious they're all kind of tied. Obviously, uh, the growth of one is going to create the growth of the other. I have uh, recently, I think a lot of your listeners are going to be Christians, right? They're going to be people of faith, and I think they're going to feel this one because it's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. Uh, we all act like it's weird to make a lot of money or something. Uh, like it's you know it's questionable to make a lot of money. You know we we hear the Bible verse about. Uh, the rich man entering heaven and how hard it is and all that. And, and I, I hear you, but at the same time, God wanted to uh, give you abundance, you know, abundant yeah. journey. There you go. God wanted to give you uh, a, a giant domain that you can control and you should, you can make more impact on the world, your family, other Christians, people that aren't Christian yet by having that impact, then you can do it without it. Right. And so Recently, we set some financial goals that are big, uh, frankly, 
too big, like to the point that I'm like, I, I, I say it out loud and I'm like, I'm not going to change it because I believe in the whole idea of big goals. And if I go lower it, I'm going to be you know, secretly kicking myself for lowering a goal when I didn't need to. But I look at it and go, you know, this, that amount of money, if I, if I were to make that amount of money, uh, I couldn't possibly spend it all. So what would I do with it? I'd give it away. I'd go find, you know, things I want to bless people, help people start businesses, things that preferably things that are, uh, cyclical that can, you know, self-sustaining. So not, not a huge fan of just giving money away. I, I like the idea of giving money to, to, uh, causes that are self-sustaining or helping somebody start a business or something like that. But, uh, my wife and I are both very big on that and, uh, she, she has a lot of similar goals. And so we set really big income goals and the goal is to give half of it away. And so, uh, Get get so much that you couldn't possibly spend half of it, and then go bless God's people with it. And uh, so that that's kind of our our goal. And, and cash flow has never been something I've I've ever had in my life. Uh, I've built a lot of assets recently, obviously, uh, but assets don't necessarily create cash flow uh, when you've got carried interest and all different kinds of things in them. So um, I'm looking to make that next step: uh, create actual cash and and uh, income uh, on a on a monthly, weekly, you know, yearly basis. Uh, and I'm setting bigger goals that. there too. The wife and I have a similar goal with the income. So I love that. That's a, that's a great answer. Last one here at the end of your life, what do you hope you'll be remembered for? <laughs> um, I thought of a joke. I don't I probably won't <laughs> go there. Um, um, I think I kind of alluded to it earlier. I think impact, uh, on, on, on generations, um, more and more, and really, very recently, this is a this is more in the last like ninety to one hundred twenty days. I really want to have an impact on people's mindset um, because I'm realizing that the only way I would have gotten where I am so far or where I'm gonna go is by having the right mindset. Uh, it's it's incredibly powerful to have the right mindset. So I'm trying to teach the right mindset to my wife, to my kids, you know, and start there. They're the ones that are seeing me every day. Um, but I, I would not be able to overcome the things in my life, the fears, the, the uh, anxiety, the stress of running businesses and stuff like that without being in the right mindset. So it's something I'm really focused on myself about. And then it made me realize that that's actually what I want the impact to be. M- more than the money, more than the, the businesses that pass down through generations. Like, why did we create that? And how do I make sure that the next generation learns the mindset behind it and doesn't take that part for granted? Because uh, they won't be able to sustain it if they don't. So, dude, that's so good. Um, and it all just everything that you're saying uh, fits together. In that, um, while uh, it's awesome to be able to build a huge portfolio of properties and make a, a an incredible amount of money. The money in and of itself is not the thing that is uh, ultimately satisfying or that ultimately sustains, right. um, that, uh, it's, it's what you can do with that, the kind of impact that you can have and, uh, and how there are things that, uh, transcend money, um, like having, uh, mindset, having the right sort of attitude and perspective, uh, to life. And, um, 
So anyhow, I just, I love what uh, you're building. Uh, I love the the depth of the conversation uh, here and with you because it's, it's funny, you know, you think uh, people, I think they have this idea of what self-storage is and who self-storage operators <laughs> are. And, uh, you know, it, it's, sure it's a pretty unsophisticated yeah. business, like on the, on the whole, right? Uh, but it's the beauty of it, actually. Right, yeah, yeah. that's why it's such a, freaking really is. attractive uh, <clears throat> asset um, but I do love the uh, the depth of of thought intentionality um, that you've brought to this industry I love the ways that you're advancing it forward and uh, I love the ways that you've got all of that tied into uh, um, you know where where you ultimately want to go in life with generational impact and, and doing good. So, yeah. uh, you know, I've got a hundred more uh, questions for you. You've mentioned, uh, you know, partnership. And so at some point, I'd love to hear just what that's like to have a, a long-term uh, business partner. We could have gotten into hiring. We could have gotten into so many things, no which, uh, you know, leads me to think, we should have a follow-up episode a handful okay. of months down down the uh, down sure. the road, and we'll continue to check in with you and uh, see how how you're progressing. Uh, definitely, let us know when um, that huge uh, you know public storage or massive REIT approaches you with that offer. You can't refuse. I won't have to let you know. You'll see. <laughs> yeah, it. that's yeah. right. We want to celebrate with you. Um, yeah, Sounds good. In uh, in the meantime, uh, for folks that do want to connect with you, follow along with your journey, um, website, social media channels, where would you send people? Just LinkedIn. Uh, you can find everything else from LinkedIn. Okay. Um, uh, LinkedIn is kind of the the platform I use because it's such a a, a business entrepreneurial focused uh, platform. Uh, I am trying to get involved more on Instagram and Facebook and others, and I and I will. And uh, I'm actually going to fall in your footsteps and do some podcasting and stuff like cool. that in the future. So there'll be other ways to connect with us later, but LinkedIn will lead you to everything else. Um, and I post there usually every day, uh, something that I'm thinking about. That's kind of a new goal of mine uh, for the last month or so is to post every single day. So nice. I'm going to try to post every day on what I'm thinking about, what I'm praying about, what I'm reading, uh, or maybe it's just the challenge of the day and how I'm going to try to overcome it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn, Jonah M. Hall, uh, you can reach out there. Perfect. Listeners, I will include that link down in the show notes. So do be sure to connect with Jonah there. I know that I am going to add you right after this uh, so that I can uh, have your help in uh, setting my own mindset and goals and be uh, continually inspired by the things that you are doing. Uh, Listeners, while you're uh, looking at at Jonah's or or right after looking at his LinkedIn, um, you can also head over to AbundantJourney.net and sign up for our newsletter. Uh, Also, the very best thing, the, the one number one thing that we would ask of you is that you share this episode with somebody who you think would benefit. It, uh, from it that not only serves uh, your friend, but it also helps us uh, grow our listenership and audience here so that we can inspire more entrepreneurship for good and help others along the way in their own uh, journey towards abundance. So uh, please do that and look forward to connecting with everybody again real soon. Jonah, once again, man, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. I didn't actually realize we were all going to be on the call at the same time. So this, I, I like the, I like three people on a call. It's actually way totally. better than two. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know if you know that, but I've been on some other podcasts, and uh, you know, it's 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 harder to keep everything going. That third person is kind of filling in the gaps or knowing where yep. to take it next. That's fun. I, li- I like three people. On well, that's cool. Right you got you got uh, Nick and Nick here coming at you. So <laughs> glad that uh, glad that you Nick. jump on, man. Well, good. Well, listeners, again, thanks for hopping on with us. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, keep working hard. Yeah.